Hello and welcome to Counterpressed on The Ringer and Spotify. I'm in the studio with Jesse Parker Humphreys and a very special guest, Natalie Washington from Football vs Transphobia. Thanks for coming into the studio. An absolute pleasure. Delighted to be here. Every week, Very excited. Every week there's a new first. And this week <laughs> we have the first guest, guest in the studio with us. Like real, like, I say real guest, which sounds so like a disrespect to Ryan. So someone who's not from the Writers House Cinematic <laughs> Universe yes. and someone who's not on Zoom. Yes. It's quite yeah. a specific Yeah record but important one to have oh, i think a great honor um, yeah. add that yeah. to the wikipedia page you know like <laughs> yep. when they put That's appearances in order well not on the counterpress wiki on the counterpress wiki now, yeah. yeah so yeah. natalie you will be in counterpress you'll be number one on that little graph so very exciting uh, and natalie's <laughs> going to be here today to talk about football versus transphobia which is a, a campaign uh going on kind of more broadly but it's the week of action this week um, but before we get on to that and also touch on the Champions League Court final last night we do want to pay tribute to the passing of Paul O'Grady an absolute queer icon also known as the performer Lily Savage one of the biggest drag queens in British TV and entertainment history a huge trans ally as well and Jesse the stories on the timeline yesterday were just like heartbreaking but also amazing because so many people were sharing little snippets of having worked with him or other little bits as well yeah, I always think it's a real shame kind of when someone passes away that that's maybe, you know, the biggest opportunity to engage with their work when everything all kind of comes up on the timeline at the same time. Um, but also, like, what an amazing way to to celebrate someone who, sadly, I think we don't see on our televisions anymore in terms of, you know, being unapologetically gay, camp, um, left-wing, uh, and, you know, it's, it's amazing, was watching some of the clips, you know, how fresh uh what lily and paul kind of were doing uh you know years ago and <laughs> it's almost like depressing to think about now like how how far away and different that feels from the the media situation that we have today yeah it's interesting and certainly something we're going to touch on a little bit on today's show uh, we're going to be talking about football versus transphobia the big campaign but we're also going to be touching on wider conversations around trans inclusion in football and really important conversations that need to be happening that aren't necessarily happening right now and also trans inclusion in society more widely and we're also going to be touching on the Champions League so let's get into it after this. Right, so we've got to talk about Arsenal's quarterfinal win at the Emirates against Bayern Munich, Jesse. We were there. It was a very, very impressive performance from Arsenal. We were disappointed in what Brian... Brian? Brian? Brian Munich. <laughs> no, I was disappointed in Brian. He's let himself down again. <laughs> always, always a disappointment. Always people there to watch him. <laughs> Not Brian. We're disappointed in Bayern Munich because they gave us absolutely nothing, didn't they? Yeah. Um, it it was funny. It felt like this game, maybe it's because I'm still scarred, but it really reminded me of City-Chelsea at the weekend, just in terms of feeling like a team had turned up to a match whereby they were already like fully puffed. And I don't know whether... The Wolfsburg game just took it out of Bayern. I do think Arsenal played really, really well and did well to shut Bayern down. But I felt like there were certain things Bayern were trying, which 
just did not work. You know, this kind of inverting Clara Bull to kind of create these overloads in midfield, and but they couldn't get anyone on the ball, and then they didn't have. Uh, you know those threats on the flanks I thought Franzi Kett it was a really hard game for her to come come into and, and she had a really tough night but yeah equally Arsenal very impressive to come back from Kim Little going off through injury I thought Leah Williamson was amazing playing in that role not just like in midfield but as an eight you know she wasn't just being this deep lying passer of the ball which you know we've seen her do for England and Arsenal in the past and um, I thought she looked really dynamic she was on the right wing at one point <laughs> I know I know um yeah first goal is obviously just like gorgeous as well uh yeah Arsenal were, were fully fully worth their win and and I think probably you know the best performance I've ever seen them put in at the Emirates yeah yeah I have to say Natalie what did you make of Freedom Marmon's unbelievable goal wow yeah sensational I mean I'm absolutely here for the assist yeah, I'm a big fan of a little flick back heel like that from from Leah Williamson. But yeah, what a goal that was! That's one of those ones that uh, I think um, probably is going to switch a few more people, ho- hopefully, onto women's football. We've seen that. Uh, we've seen that on YouTube today. So yeah, smashing. Yeah, it was going all over Twitter, just like blowing up. Yeah. And Jesse, we were saying we kind of wish that was the winning goal because it was the <laughs> one that everyone will remember. And then Blackstenius gets that header, which obviously kind of gets them over the line. And they could have had five or six. They had so many good chances. Five or six is generous. I'm going to say three or four in the hypothetical goals. Chart. Okay, okay, but there were some serious there were some chances. Good chances. Yeah, that Caitlin Ford one um, where she's just leaning back and blazes it over the bar. That was like the standout one. Do you remember that one in the first half where there was a double save? That, yeah, yeah. Marla Gross made some spectacular saves as well. Um, yeah, and it just never. I think like it never looked like Bayern we're going to get back into the game. And I think that was a bit of the the disappointment. And I was having a conversation with someone about this last night, but about, you know, maybe they do look at the Frauen Bundesliga and getting that win over Wolfsburg, that point advantage. And for Bayern, maybe that feels like the priority more than the Champions League. Because I think what felt disappointing to me was that you could even see with the subs Alexander Strauss was, you know, making, he didn't, feel like pushing this game to the end, you know, and Damjanovic came on quite late, Cindy Lohman came on quite late, obviously I assume Lohman wasn't fully fit, but I, you just want these Champions League games to have those, I mean, not if you're an Arsenal fan, but from a neutral's perspective, have those like heart-stopping moments, and I thought it was a bit of a shame we didn't really get any of that from from Bayern, whether that was just because of tiredness, whether they just, you know, felt like, yeah, they do want to, to prioritise stuff in Germany. I, I guess that's just the way it goes. But Bayern have also now, like for three years in a row, I feel like have kind of fumbled the bag on on winnable Champions League knockout games. You know, mm. the, the semi-final against Chelsea, obviously the PSG game last year where everyone got coronavirus and, and then even this Arsenal game, you know, there were moments where I felt like the game was in their hands, especially in the first half of the first leg. But... I mean, over the two legs, Arsenal were well worth the win. Yeah, and there was a, there was a frantic energy to last night for both teams. It wasn't like um, Arsenal kind of took... They did take control of the game, but not in a sense of we're going to be really solid in the ball, we're going to be calm and sort of try and ride the pace of the game. Everything was up to 100 from the first minute. Everyone was just trying to play like quick one-touch football and then losing possession and then chasing the ball again. So the energy was so chaotic, but Arsenal just kind of managed to ride the storm a little bit and channel that into the right moments, which I thought 
was impressive given the up and down nature of their season. Whereas Bayern just could never quite work out what they wanted to do. It was sometimes try and play out from the back, sometimes kick it long. And Schuler had absolutely nothing to get hold of all game. I also thought Bayern used the space really poorly. They didn't really work out what they wanted to do on that big Emirates pitch because there were a few moments where they did have those overlap opportunities and had two players out wide and you thought, just get the ball over to them. And then they would kind of play it short and lose possession. I, I did feel for Georgia Stanway because she looked like she was tearing her hair out a little bit at Yeah, times. she was definitely Bayern's best player. But you know what I'm sad about? No goal line technology used. We all wanted to see <laughs> it. We, we wanted all to see. wanted to see if it was turned on. But uh, shame. There, but, was a, there was an excellent Georgia Stanway frustration booking at the end, which I think was <laughs> yeah, a, a very, typical, very, te- very, very textbook. Very on brand. Um, and actually, credit to, to Arsenal because they had to ride out some early yellow cards as well for their players. It was The referee was interesting at times. Um, and wait to see what happens with Kim Little, Kate McCabe, could be two massive injuries that Arsenal add to, you know, the ones they've already got in uh, Vivian Miedemar and Beth Mead. But all in all, I think, given this is their first semi-final in 10 years, and Tom Gary, who is a Blues fan, um, which he won't mind me saying on the podcast, but the fact that he was saying the weird record of Birmingham being the most recent semi-finalist than Arsenal, obviously exclude Chelsea, but Birmingham have been in a, in a semi-final more recently than Arsenal in the Champions League. And finally, Arsenal have kicked that record. That is massive, Jesse, for their season, given four months ago, it looked like they could actually end the campaign trophyless again. The way that they've turned it around in the performances, which is most important for me watching them, in the last month has been impressive. Yeah, they've had a phenomenal march and I think Jonas said after the game, you know, there's only so long you can go with performances, which he termed as good, but I don't know if I'd go that far, but, you know, without getting the results. And I I do think that was something that he needed to show that he could get with this team. And yeah, to to have the the Conti Cup um, win, to reach semi-final uh, for the first time in a decade, you know, it's kind of impossible to argue with with those results obviously it will be very interesting to see how the season gets looked back on depending on on what could happen you know it's very easy to imagine scenario whereby Arsenal finish fourth and then if they don't win the Champions League they're not back in it next year so I think regardless of what happens from here on out Arsenal can will feel like they've had a successful season in terms of of having a trophy of getting to a Champions League semi-final but also it's amazing how quickly things can can turn around in football. But I feel like also, you know, between Wolfsburg and PSG, obviously we'll find out tonight who Arsenal play. Arsenal should feel like they could beat either of those teams. So I think, you know, from from here, the aim has to be reaching the final. And again, could have fascinating ramifications in the league in terms of where Arsenal's focus now lies. Yeah, it's, it's going to be massive and they could realistically be in a Champions League final, which would be huge. And I, I've been relieved as well at how Jonas Eideveld sort of switched the narrative and the rhetoric a little bit, especially last night in his post-match, because like you, Jesse, I was feeling like he was leaning on these 9-0 wins against Leeds United as a bit of a crutch to say, we've got good performances in us, we've got goals in us. But last night, the first thing he said was basically, now we need to do more than this. This needs to be where we kind of mark ourselves. And I think that's really important because... 
I just found that there was too much negativity and not necessarily deliberate negativity because he's always trying to protect his players and that's what managers do. But this relentless positivity makes it seem like you're covering up for something and you don't necessarily acknowledge the issues or you don't have that reality check. And I think now this will be so important for them going forward because this is Arsenal, like the most successful team in the history of English women's football. You have to have performances like that more often than you've been getting. That You have to have that in the Champions League quarterfinal and that in Dagenham against West Ham. And they've been two stop-start for me. And so many of those players now should be like, right, that's my minimum every week. And moving forward, I think it's going to be interesting to see, like you say, what happens. But that's enough Arsenal Champions League chat for now. In the other quarterfinal that took place on Wednesday, Barcelona, unsurprisingly, after Roma's plucky performance at home, blew them away in the second leg at the new Camp. Barcelona winning that one 5-1 and going through, they will face... The winner of Chelsea or Leon and Jesse is staring at me, looking like they're about to be sick <laughs> on the podcast. So yeah, we'll, we'll probably reflect on that on Monday's show, obviously, and we'll see if well, Jesse actually won't be in on Monday, so we probably won't touch on it. Uh, but I wasn't anyway. in for the first leg either, and that went oh, wow. True, it could be good luck. We'll have to wait and see. But yes, that's enough Champions League chat for now. Let's get talking about football versus transphobia next. Right, Natalie, you're in the studio with us, but we haven't actually introed you properly and found out a little bit about who you are and why you're here. <laughs> um, because we yeah. know you as Twitter friends, internet pals, which... <laughs> internet person. Yeah, internet person. Yeah. And actually, Jesse and I were internet pals. Yeah. And me and Becky were sort of internet pals. We did meet IRL first. But anyway, we know you through the wonderful world of Twitter so, first of all, kind of tell us about who you are and how you got involved with the football versus transphobia. Yeah, so how to describe oneself. <laughs> I think so. I am um, a footballer, I guess. Um, just about still describe myself as that, I think. Um, so, yeah, and I'm a, a trans woman. I transitioned about 10 years ago and I've been playing in the women's game now for about, oh gosh, about eight, seven, eight years, I think. Um, and. Yeah, like football for me has just kind of turned into this all-encompassing kind of um, well-being crusade, I suppose, if you like. Um, hence the campaign, which I know we'll come on to. Um, but I think sort of origin stories, if you like. I used to play football when I was very young. And actually, weirdly, the reason I got into football is because I was trying to fit in with gendered expectations of what boys were supposed to do. And this was the 80s and boys were supposed to play football and girls weren't, weren't supposed to play football, which wrong then, wrong now, but that's the <laughs> 80s, right? So I started playing football and I thought this will kind of help me manage this nonsense going on in my head that I couldn't really be bothered to deal with or didn't really have the language or indeed mental capacity to deal with. So started playing football and I realised, oh, actually, this is quite good. I quite like this. So I kept doing it, um, but then when I you know, fast forward to adulthood, kind of started to think about coming out, starting to kind of deal with, um, you know, gender identity a little bit more front of mind. Um, I stopped playing football because kind of men's Sunday league was not a really a place for gender expression exploration. Like it wasn't really somewhere where I felt very safe to kind of, you know, play a little bit with gender. Um, 
so I stopped playing. Um, I did try for a while, you know. I didn't, I didn't give up super easily, but it just didn't, it didn't feel, didn't feel great. Um, so then I um, was out of the game for about two years before I then got back in, and I was basically I watched the World Cup in Canada. I watched the World Cup in Canada in 2015, and was like, yeah, I need to get, need to get back in, need to get back on the pitch. So I reached out to my local club, and they were cool about it. Um, took me 18 months to get permission to actually play which maybe we'll come to was one of the barriers that people people tend to encounter but yeah that's that I suppose that I should say actually that gap of 18 months where I couldn't play was the thing that got me into the campaign and you know that's where the campaign came from I met some people involved in LGBT sports activism through that um started to get some contacts and that's where I met the people that helped me out in building the campaign and and getting us to where we are now. So I guess a fortuitous delay, if you like. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this. But And it's sort of an extension of Football v Homophobia, which is an existing yep. campaign that's been running for a fairly long time now. Isn't it? Yeah, so Football v Homophobia came originally out of the Justin Fashion New campaign. Um, obviously founded after he you know, tragically um, died by suicide you know, as the story that I'm sure many people are familiar with. Um, so it came out of that, um, and the organisation that runs it, uh, which is Pride Sports, reached out to me and said, could I help them with some stuff around trans inclusion? Um, and then you're obviously Football v Transphobia extended out of there. And we are currently in Football v Transphobia's week of action. So what does that actually mean? Yeah, so I mean, the week of action came about because obviously we've got Trans Day of Visibility, on the 31st, tomorrow. Um, and we wanted to carve out a little bit of space separate from the FEH campaign, which talks about transphobia as well, but we wanted to carve out this extra space to talk about specifically trans inclusion in football. And the campaign has always been very clear that it's not just about getting people playing, it's also about supporting trans people to be involved in football in all sorts of other ways. So whether they be you know, refereeing, coaching, writing, podcasting, you know, all of this stuff. Um, there should be trans people represented in these areas. And that's how we get full inclusion by making sure that the people writing about the topics have a lived experience of the topic and that kind of stuff. So um, the week of action, the genesis of it was around, let's just carve out some space and have some conversations. So what we did initially was we shared some profiles with trans people that are involved in football and said, look, these people are out there, these are some of the opportunities you might get, coaches and you know all sorts of roles in football. Um, just to show that actually like we are present, because I think a lot of people just didn't think of the context of trans people in football at all. Um, and then it's kind of progressed into working with clubs and FAs and organisations to say, like, what can you do to be more trans-inclusive? So we've produced some resources, for example, to help journalists in writing about trans people in football, to help county FAs in provisioning facilities and resources and stuff that you know, are, be, are more inclusive and, you know, degendering things and all this, this stuff that actually isn't just good for trans people, but it's great generally. Um, but also, like, now... Um, what is becoming increasingly important, I think, is using football as a tool to reach the wider public to understand trans identity more generally. So obviously we can reach a lot of people through sport that we cannot reach in other ways. You know, there are people that get a lot of their cultural reference points and so on through football. And so if they see trans people represented in the game that they love and that they enjoy every week, then clearly, hopefully by osmosis, some actual further understanding about trans people is going to come out of that, which 
in the sort of wider context we're in at the moment feels really, really important. Yeah, and it's interesting as well because with that, I I personally feel like, and Jesse, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like so so much of the conversation around inclusion is always really targeted at from a fan's point of view and engaging as a fan in the sport. But that that message feels so lost when we talk about actual participation, not just from a player perspective, but actually just like in the football ecosystem outside of being a fan. And I wonder how that kind of evolves as we go through and where we are right now in the conversation around trans inclusion in society more broadly. It's sort of like every single time I see that messaging, it always seems like all these fans are together, it's great. And then the conversation just stops. And I don't know how, I, you know, maybe that's deliberate. I don't know. But it always just feels like this is the lovely bit and we're going to stop there. <laughs> yeah, well, I, and I think it's purposeful. You know, I think the idea is, you know, everyone can be a fan. But then when it comes to, you know, the realities and the people who run football, they don't want everyone to play football. So that's why I think it, it stops there. And I think that's that's the frustration is that oftentimes these narratives of inclusion, and I think you see it across, you know, different different forms of inclusion. Although, you know, maybe when we're talking about trans people, it's most obvious in, in some of the rules around being able to play. But I think you can equally apply it to, you know, some of the institutional barriers that, for example, are why we don't see as many Asian people playing football um, and, and why that kind of happened and, you know, whether people like the FA, other governing bodies are doing enough to support a diverse sport generally. Um, and I think it's important to to recognise and, and even to call out that when we're talking about trans inclusion in, in football, like Natalie said, like we mean that for everyone, whether you're looking at the media and who's telling trans people's stories in sport, whether you're looking at who gets to, to play football, who gets to run football, all of these things should be part of an inclusive narrative. And, and it's too easy just to stop and say, yes, Obviously, we want everyone to be safe, feel comfortable going to watch football, but that's not the same as getting to play it, getting to run it, getting to talk about it. And Natalie, you, you touched on the 18 months you had to wait yeah. in order to play again, but could you tell us a little bit about actually the process of trying to play and how complicated, shall we say, to, to put it kind of plainly, yeah, the FA journey, rules yeah. around it are as well for, for any trans person that wants to play. Yeah, so obviously I'm, I play in England, so English FA rules apply, but they're not vastly different for other countries in the UK. So the policy states, and I'm going to try and quote it verbatim, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it states that in order to be eligible to compete in women's football, a trans woman must display a testosterone level that is at an appropriate or in an appropriate range for an appropriate period of time. It doesn't define what appropriate is in either of those situations, which gave me a bit of a challenge because, of course, I, like most trans people who are on hormones, like I had a pretty good handle on what my hormone levels were prior to going into it, but I didn't know what I had to try and hit. Um, so for me, what it looked like was I applied and 
took about three months to get my doctors to release some <laughs> some documentation that said what my hormone levels were, which was a bit of a faff. And that wasn't the FA's fault. That was just admin. So once I'd sent off, or once I'd got my doctor to send off these this documentation of my hormone levels to the FA, um, they took a while, reviewed that, and said, "Okay, your testosterone level was too high." Now, at the time, my testosterone level was, I think, about six or seven nanomoles per litre of testosterone, which, to anyone listening that doesn't understand that, which I imagine is most, um, that's below a typical male range, but above a typical female range. Um, And what I later discovered is that the the level they were asking for at the time was about 1.5 nanomoles per litre, which is about halfway up a typical female range, and depending on who you ask. Um, So fair enough, they said, it's not low, your testosterone level isn't low enough, you can't play. So I had to go then to my doctor, and I was seeing a doctor privately at the time because I was on NHS waiting list, which at the time, the NHS waiting list was only 18 months, but it's four to six <laughs> years now. Um, four to six, not 46, although we're, we're trending in that direction. Um, and so I said, okay, right, I'll go and get my medication changed, got my medication changed, got a different um, testosterone suppressant, which basically nuked my T levels and are really, really low. Applied again. They said, yeah, that's fine. Now you need to be at that level for a year. So that was the appropriate length of time in this context. So trained for a year, couldn't play competitive games. I played the odd friendly. That was allowed. Um, And then in that year's time, got my permission, was able to play and triumphantly played in a nil-nil draw against Fleet Town. Iconic. That's Another the yeah, stuff just, worth the way. Just absolutely ground it out. <laughs> I um, love that that's also going to be on the wiki now, so you can have that perfect. Yeah, yeah. Nil-nil. Nil-nil against Fleet Town. I think it was a nil-nil against Fleet Town. We'll, we'll go with that. Um, uh, and then, actually, I got a surgery date through about two weeks later, um, and so I think I played three games, and then I was off for another six months out until the next season. So, in, in all, it was really two years, but with just three three games in between. And what are three games they were? Oh, Do you remember honestly, the other scores? Or um, The streets will never forget those games. Yeah, they, 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 they're, they're iconic, those games. Yeah. I think, you know, if you look, um, you know, they've got, you know, the, the team photo up on the wall in the clubhouse and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, do you know what? I can't. They were, they, were, they were not overly notable. I think I did score in one of them, actually, but I think it was the scrappiest kind of like, you know, goal kick fell to me and I just, rebounded it into the bottom right hand corner or something just an awful awful goal but <laughs> and and your story is you know you could probably copy and paste it for so many people who are trying to participate and Jesse not even as far as I suppose Natalie got but what we've been seeing a lot recently and this is where the overall kind of aggressive targeting of of trans people in society is filled into football. When you look at a team like Manchester Laces and what Helen Hardy's been doing there with their their inclusive league is actually people just trying to identify someone's gender by what they look like and saying, you look too masculine to be playing in these games. Nothing to do with measuring anyone's testosterone or anything like that. Nothing to do with policy. It's just we don't believe in our little society and our little construct that I as a referee have created in my mind of what women should look like that you are a woman so it's it's extending to so much more sort of aggressive policing of norms and bodies and everything as well yeah and I think you know that's a result of the way that sport has been used in a broader culture war against trans people and I think you know something that's really frustrating upsetting about being trans in in 2023 is that it just feels like 
it goes backwards, you know, that actually, you know, the kind of experiences Natalie had was probably a potentially a better experience, even having spoken through it than than what people would go through today, like trying to do the same, same thing. And I think what's, you know, when you see different governing bodies coming out with this, you know, very sort of, I want to say dog whistle, but I don't even know if it is a dog whistle, but just very transphobic policies in the way that not only the policies are written, but the way they're then talked about, briefed. Um, when you see different media organisations with very high profile transphobes involved in their sports writing, that's what creates a whole culture where, you know, then the experiences of, of players within the Manchester Laces, you know, this stuff filters down to, you know, the grassest of grassroots. Um, mm. And, you know, Natalie hasn't mentioned it there and I don't want to offend, but you're not talking about playing at the highest level of, of football in your story, <laughs> right? <not>? Oh, <laughs> right, that's enough. <laughs> Natalie's <laughs> off now. <laughs> right. um, sorry, you're not Premier League footballer. <laughs> Get out of this podcast. But I feel like that's an important No, it absolutely point. is. It absolutely is. We like... only have WSL players on our show, so sorry. Yeah, oh, all right. <laughs> no, that. no, it... it... <laughs> I'll, I'll get over it. No, it absolutely is because, yeah, I mean, so I'm playing at tier six. So I'm playing in the southern region, first division. But when I started playing, I was in the Hampshire County League. So we're like you know, tier eight um, at the time, tier seven or eight. And I mean, what was interesting about my experience was that this was 2015, 2016 we're talking about. So I had the difficulties with complying with the policy which some people might have it easier. You know, some people might find that their testosterone level is fine to begin with and they just sail through. I have heard of that um, because they've been on a you know testosterone blockers for a long period of time. But I didn't have to deal particularly with a, a massively hostile media and social environment. Like it wasn't, hey, trans people are great, you know, come and play football, but it wasn't you're a danger to children and, you know, <laughs> should be got rid of immediately like it is now and I think that's obviously the challenge for a lot of people now so yeah so I'm I'm at tier six I mean someone else playing at tier six had a protest at one of their games last season you know they had people turn up with flags and banners and you know didn't disrupt the game but obviously it was quite a distraction for everyone and to on which both sides their team the- was also like fuck you we don't care that we've exactly. got a trans women on our team obviously yeah yeah um and so, like, that's not a if you if that's you know that was someone who's a, a strong person has been around a bit and can do it. But if that's your first game, mm. it's no wonder people don't want to get involved if they're worried about that that mm. sort of thing happening. Jesse, I feel like we're seeing exactly what you referenced there in women's football and women's sport as a whole, and then seeing that ripple effect throughout society of those kind of pockets of influence and how they then, the knock-on effect on that is huge. And there are almost people that are placed in sport as figureheads and have to sort of take abuse for a wider sort of transphobic agenda. Yeah, I think... Sport is a very effective place to put transphobic rhetoric because it becomes very easy to frame it around things separate from the realities of trans people's lives, but also actually, you know, intersex people, cis people, anyone who doesn't conform to what some people see see as the right sports person. And this is also something that has historically happened in sport forever. You know, like 
people were doing gender tests in inverted commas in the 1930s on women because this idea that this the women's category when it was founded you know was something that men could infiltrate and basically that narrative has you know extended for a hundred years and it's now just used as a way to um impact specifically trans women but of course uh you know it affects everyone who wants to participate in sport and is seen as being slightly different and i think the reason why sport has become such an effective uh place for this is because it all comes down to this strange rhetoric of fairness so it's the idea behind it is it's not about being trans it's about it's not fair on other people sport isn't fair <laughs> so it's ridiculous but this is the way that it works to distract from the actual basis, I think, behind a lot of the people who make these arguments, which is that they don't want trans people to exist. And that's why it's so insidious. And that's why it's so important to push back on it within sports, because it's all part of a wider and broader narrative that has existed for a while, but has undoubtedly intensified within the past five, ten years. And what's so frustrating, I think, is to see so many people caught up in almost the the magic trick of using this narrative around trans women stealing places in sport, which is just factually not true. I also mm. want to touch on as well, Natalie, and I'm sure this is something that you've talked through on panels and on media a million times, but also the science that certain people within this conversation like to lean on, a lot of it, isn't necessarily reliable or the scientists themselves are now working on different research or countering what was reported in the past. Like it's a constantly evolving place and there hasn't been a lot of work in that area, but the work that is coming out, a lot of scientists say actually the, the, the rhetoric that there used to be around exclusion, especially at the elite level around X, Y, Z and testosterone and all these biological factors we actually can't necessarily prove those to make an impact now, but yet that still isn't changing the conversation because like Jesse says, perhaps that's not even the intention anyway. But also I think it's important to reference that science because that's what everyone always likes to say. What about the science? Here's the white paper. But actually we are now getting to a point where we've got more research and the research is actually countering a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to circle back to Jesse's point on this as well because it's all absolutely linked. But yeah, I mean, so at the moment, there is research going on um, to, uh, in all sorts of groups all, all over the world, but there's a couple in particular in the UK where they're looking at comparisons of trans women and cisgender women, for example, in comparable levels of training, comparable sports, or looking at longitudinal studies about, you know, the impacts of, you know, testosterone suppression and, and typical sort of uh, transition healthcare on performance. Some of that stuff's going to start to come to fruition soon. And the, some of these are the first ones where we've actually seen actual studies on actual trans athletes Um so they will be quite enlightening. And it's interesting that a lot of sports are making these moves to restrict now before we're getting this data, which is obviously a, a shame. Um, but I think if people think that science is going to give us a definitive answer, it, they've not been paying attention to society for the last however many decades because that's not how science works. It's not going to give us a definitive answer. No one is going to come up with a, a study that says, yeah, this proves it's fair or yeah, this proves it's not fair. 
Because for starters, we can't even define what fairness is very, very well. There's all sorts of other factors at play that, that impact upon fairness, which, you know, when we talk about women's sport and women's football, we know a lot of those well, like it's funding, it's access to resources, it's facilities and all of these things which impact on that. So we're not going to get that definitive answer. But what we might get is something that's saying, OK, we've got some reasonable bounds within it. But I think what it's all linked back to is a lot of people, for a lot of people, it really is fundamentally ideological or it's it's a philosophical question where if you believe that trans people are who they say they are then the sport will back up your position to include if you believe that trans people aren't who they say they are you'll you'll find research to back up your decision to exclude and so when you really get down to it it's about people having sometimes quasi-religious beliefs and then just kind of using the science to support that and again this is not the only situation that happens in um but yeah you can always pick and choose whatever you want to use as your evidence to fit said agenda in society like that's how it kind of works and it's so tied up with misogyny because Mm. i always go back to that study that everyone remembers from a few years ago where they asked a bunch of men whether they could take a game off serena williams (laughs) and whatever many percent it was like 70 said yeah yeah of course i could yeah that'd be absolutely fine like you know as the tennis ball flies cleanly through their skull (laughs) and like so much of it is related to that there are so many men out there that think they could just oh yeah i'll just you know i'll just put on a dress and serena vegan will be on on the phone to me within minutes and it's like it doesn't quite work like that you know like if it was that easy and and if it was that easy and that non-disruptive to your life and it could actually work someone probably would have done it, but nobody has done it. There hasn't been any evidence of so-called gender fraud that I'm aware of in any sport anywhere outside of, you know, accusations in the 1930s <laughs> around, which you know, were probably fundamentally intersex people and were very problematically handled. So it's it's not something that really happens um, because what? why? Why would someone go on hormones for two years be out of the game potentially for two years you know if you're if you're a professional being out of your sport for two years how are you paying the bills like you're you're, how are you keeping up your match sharpness and stuff like that it's just it doesn't doesn't ring true i think it's a really important point to touch on because when you look within transphobic circles the amount of misogyny that you see there is astounding because Not just in sport, but in terms of lots of the narratives around these things. But when you specifically look at the sport thing and you you follow their their thought process to the logical conclusion, they're basically just saying that, like, no cis woman could ever be very good at sport, which is just, you know, that is just misogyny. It's this Mm. idea that, you know, if if someone goes through a male puberty, or even if they don't, because obviously there's lots of conversations around uh, puberty blockers and and things like that, which, uh, you know, lots of younger people have now taken and how that affects um, people's understanding of trans people in sport, I I don't think we've fully explored yet. But this, this idea that, you know, when we see the kind of technical skill or the amount of training, the amount of work the the biological advantages that some people are going to have over other people like the the classic thing is i'm like i might have liked to be a basketball player but i'm fucking five foot three do you know what i mean like what like what am i supposed to do then and i just think this is it's so crucial to say that there are a lot of very talented athletes regardless of gender regardless of whether they're trans or not and the the joy and the fun of sport 
is both the participation, but it is the competition. And it's the reason why it's interesting is because sport isn't just about who has the highest testosterone level. Otherwise, we'd just go to a laboratory and watch people have a scientific experiment done on them and then cheer at the end like that. <laughs> it, no, you're right. You're right. And I what think, a dystopian concept. <laughs> and I can't That's wait to yeah. see it live streamed on Twitch. But I think you're, yeah. you're right because obviously, you know, on today's episode, we didn't want to just get bogged down in the elite battle for 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 trans people because it also is it is such a small group because it is about that wider conversation around participation but at the end of the day that elite conversation is where the wider sort of impact has and that has ramifications for everyone else because mm. that's the battleground it's always about protecting women's sport and the people who are always trying to protect it are people who have shown no interest in women's <laughs> sport and suddenly know that this is the place where they can get their transphobic agenda into the conversation but even though that that's going to impact so few people it has ramifications for everyone else but what i also wanted to talk about is the opportunity in women's football because we've spoken about on this show you know it's a big conversation in the sport at the moment it is being held up as a, a perfect not perfect but a very good example of inclusion in sport especially from an lgbtq point of view because there are out players the the sport is has that sort of inclusive culture within it in the media you know there's the, the fans everything we 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 do welcome that and it's a, it's a great part of the game it's really positive and I think from a women's football point of view it's frustrating because there is such a big opportunity for women's football to be at the forefront of trans inclusion and yet we are seeing the the attitudes from some of the players in the sport and the rhetoric that they're engaging with online and probably the lack of education as well for, for a lot of the players is Actually, that is being completely left behind, and we're not making um, making use of a huge opportunity to educate players and turn them into allies, and also create a space that is even better than what it already is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a good point because, as you say, like women's football has traded for some time on this, you know idea which is true that it is a more inclusive space and particularly for as you say for lgbtq people where people can be open about their identities in ways that we don't see in the men's game and there's obviously like opportunities to improve you know particularly things like race where the women's game has had some problems in in, quite well documented in recent years but i think there's a there's a false idea that comes around a lot that these places are inclusive kind of by default and it just happens without any effort but it happens because people put the effort in and it happens because people have the conversations and we have representation from people that can tell their stories and people can try to understand them a bit better and the danger is in in women's football that if we don't do the work to make sure people hear from trans people and people meet trans people and understand what we're about that as you say the the propaganda myths that are coming from elsewhere in society kind of get in by osmosis and people start to you know a lot of anti-trans thought trades on the idea of trying to scare more vulnerable women i think you touched on it earlier jesse like on this, into this idea that someone's coming to get their career Is and someone's fear? coming to yeah and that's an understandable fear because 
women get treated badly in society a lot of the time. So we need to get ahead of the game, kind of reassure and avoid that fear by saying, look, this isn't a threat to your livelihood. This isn't a threat to your safety. This is how inclusion works. This is how policy works. You know, This is um, what these people are about. And it's not some dangerous other that comes along. But I think too often in sport generally, and I think in football this happens, people are scared to have the conversation and people are scared to lean into it. So they don't, and it leaves the floor open for people who are using sport for social engineering and are using sport to try and get what they want in society who don't actually have sport's best interests at heart. Yeah, and I think also that something that's a real shame is that, and it, it kind of touches on where we started actually, this idea that you know everyone can be a fan and that's fine, but because um, trans people in sport has become such a, politicised issue it feels then that clubs and players kind of don't want to touch that side of it even if they're happy to do a nice video of all their LGBTQ fans and that's great and that's also important but they don't clubs then don't want to go that extra step which they need to go and and talk more broadly about uh, trans inclusion and why it matters why it's important why trans people deserve to play sport like anyone else and I think again what what would be amazing would be to see you know in the way that women's football has been able to lead specifically on um, LGBTQ issues I guess or like specifically issues around sexuality because you know let's not forget that Fortunately, I think we have moved past this narrative, but the idea that, you know, if you're a woman who played sport, therefore you must be a lesbian. And lots of lesbians do play sport, and that's great, and that's fine. Guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, queer women within football and within other sports have done loads of work in terms of being like, yeah, I play sport and I'm gay. And then some straight women as well have been like, I play sport and I'm straight. These are my pals. (laughs) I love my gay friends. And that's been a really amazing, heartening thing to see as a queer person. And I think especially if you look at the highest levels of women's football right now, to see so much queer representation is amazing. And, you know, there are some like incredible vocal allies within women's sport and women's football. But in the same way that people spoke out about kind of the casual homophobia that existed around women's sport. We need more people to speak out about the casual transphobia that now, casual and formal transphobia (laughs) that now exists within women's sport. Definitely. And I think this past week, unfortunately, we've seen the opposite of that. And I think so often, and what's so frustrating is, yes, we do have various individuals who are out and out transphobes in this society and will not be moved from their position and are not willing to listen. And I think what's frustrating around football is, yeah, it is cringe sometimes to say that football can change the world. Football is a force for good. But like you said at the top of the the show, Natalie, is that it actually has that very power and we need to tap into that right now, especially in the women's game. Because so often we see people interviewed um, as shiny examples of inclusivity, but then the, there is never the work to put in to actually put them as role models, as ambassadors, as as trailblazers, as it were, 
beyond to, to make it move beyond that. They are just the one, the only, and it's cool and it's great, but actually we're not going to do any of the work to make that the norm. And I think that's harder on the individuals themselves and it fails everyone else in the game and it just denies the existence of trans people, of non-binary people. And I think it's so important that football is part of that conversation and leads the way. And... There are also some amazing elements to that because we do have all these amazing people doing really cool things and they deserve to be legitimised. They deserve to exist and they deserve to be heard because that is how I think we do make that impact is we we just bring that emotion, we bring that feeling and we make people see that that's important and there is a wonderful game happening tomorrow night in London isn't that Natalie there is uh, yeah so at Dulwich Hamlet um, last year uh, I played for a team called Truck United so, T- so Trans Radio UK United um, which is a radio station as you won't be surprised to hear but they also created a, a football team um, to really like create some space for trans people to play football because for a lot of people they don't feel confident to reach out to their local team or whatever that is not an LGBT or trans specific one so it's kind of a pipeline to get people back in the game and so last year we had the first team of trans women that we think in Europe, but certainly in the UK, that played together on the pitch at the same time. We played against a, a sort of a mixed Dulwich Hamlet team. And by, by mixed, I mean it was a women's team, but it was their first and reserves, uh, which was critical because if it was just their first, I think it would have, the score would have been even worse. Um, so we did lose 7-0. Because of all those like innate advantages yes, that we have, yeah. classic trans um, women winning again. Yeah. Someone did refer to us as portly pub footballers in one of the newspapers, which I thought was, you know, slightly harsh. Um, but so last year we we had that game, and that was the, that was the big event last year, the 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 end sort of um, end game, if you like, of, of the football v transphobia week. Um, but this year. We're playing Dulwich Hamlet again. We found some extra players over the course of the year. Some people have been doing some training, so maybe we can we can improve the score a bit. But the main event is this year we have the first team of trans masculine players and trans men on the pitch at the same time in the UK. Probably beyond. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not a big one for these. Add like, that to the wiki. There we go. So yeah. we the record. Um, and so we've got. Actually, I think looking quite a decent team um, for the for the trans men who are going to be playing against a Dulwich Hamlet supporters eleven. Critical change this year. Instead of being a ninety minute game, it's thirty minute halves. Thank so God. it's one game after the other. <laughs> so a lot of people will be happy about that. Um, but yeah, that's at Dulwich Hamlet. I think the um, I'll have to check this, but I think the women's game kicks off at seven or seven fifteen, and then the men's game kicks off at eight thirty. I think it's something along that something along those lines. Um, I should probably check. But the um, yeah, it's at Dulwich Hamlet. Come along, get involved. Um, it, we want to create like a real kind of like oasis of queer joy. Um, last year it was really good. We had a good attendance. I think three, four hundred people came. Um, amazing atmosphere despite the result. Uh, we had some, some sort of tears at the end from people who it meant a great deal to them to get back playing football after, you know, for some of them, 20 years not playing football. Um, real mix of ages from 17 up to sort of people in their 50s. So it's just a real like lovely queer joy sporting event that people can come along to and uh, and get involved. And then hopefully we inspire some more people to get back playing as well. And without sounding too much like the one show, how can people get involved in football? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it'd be great for people to do so because we're an entirely sort of voluntary led organisation so everything we do is through people giving up their time 
So if people want to connect with me on social media um, or through the will be homophobia social media, which is what we use for most of our stuff, um, then look me up. I'm at trans something on most social media or we're at FVH tweets on Twitter or just search for football v homophobia, football v transphobia. Um, a lot of what we do is kind of we try and profile people and share that people are out there, but also we try and connect people up with, for example, if they're a supporter looking to get back to games, we try and pair them up with their LGBT supporters club at that club. Um, we also obviously can signpost people to clubs that we know are supportive um, if they want to get back playing. Um, so get in touch with us via, you know, the website, any of the social media, whatever whatever suits people best, um, and support, and then just share our content, basically, like, widen the reach. Uh, we've had some really great support this year, particularly from, for example, like the Welsh FA um, designated the game against the men's game against Latvia the other day as a football v transphobia game, which was fantastic. So we got some some people interested in the campaign through that. And a hundred percent win record for games designated as exactly. a football v so, transphobia game. You know, so more people need to get on that. International <laughs> FA should be looking at that and thinking, you know, hang on. There's I our mean, competitive the, advantage. There's, there's a point at which it doesn't work anymore because if everyone does it, then they can't all, all win. But yes, that's you know, it's it's obviously um, you know giving some giving some uh, positive vibes to the teams that are doing these things. So. Yeah, definitely. And Jesse, we talked a lot today about frustrating, often depressing elements of the lack of trans inclusion and the rhetoric right now in society and football. But there are reasons to be hopeful, right? There are there is light at the end of the tunnel. There are, there are some there's some sprinkling of positivity and and we can harness that and we can we can move with that. We don't necessarily just need to get bogged down in the bad vibes. Of course, the people united will never be defeated. Um, yeah, no, and I think also uh, lots of, as much as it can be frustrating and hard to engage with and live through, you know, the incredibly transphobic rhetoric in sport, I think it's important to to say for everyone like what an amazing joyful thing sport can be what a liberatory thing uh sport can be you know for for a long time i felt like i couldn't engage in in an important way with my my body and things like that and i found like in running a space where i could enjoy myself in a way that i i, I didn't feel like i could for a very very long time and i think that's a an amazing example of how you know running's quite a solo sport but you know how you can find ways to engage with yourself or if you're interested in team sports build communities engage with other people and um you know bodies are a very contested site in this world a lot of the time and and i think it's so important to to use sport as as a way to to see bodies as a liberatory experience as well. And I think that's where the, the joy and the, the hope should come from because that's ultimately what we're fighting for is, is for everyone, regardless of gender identity or ability or, you know, race, sexuality, whatever, to, to find a, a place within sport where they can choose to truly be themselves. Yeah, power to the people. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you, absolute pleasure. And uh, we will definitely be keeping an eye on the game on Friday night and also the campaign because presume you'll probably be back next year, say, around the same sort of time as well. So keep the conversation going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we will be back on Monday with Gilly and Kate in the studio and Becky as well. 
Good luck, Jesse, tonight. Oh, my God, I need it. I'm going to be sitting alongside you, so I'm going to have my fingers crossed, because also, it's just going to be bad vibes. I know, we don't want to create the bad vibes. Let's... Good vibes only. Manifest it. Manifest it. But yes, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we know that so many of you guys listening are huge allies as well. And we know that you've sent us amazing messages around some of the queer episodes that we've done on the show before. So thank you. Thank you for all being allies. Thank you for everything that you do on social media to support. Thanks for often sometimes calling out people when they don't (laughs) support. So yes, thank you, everyone. And we'll see you on Monday.